So welcome back to uh, Dream and Affair and Hugo and I just got off a really fascinating chat with Carl Hoffman, writer, uh, who has spent an extensive amount of time with tribes in West Papua, which is now uh, modern-day Indonesia. And uh, we were talking about his book, Savage Harvest, which deals with the, the story of Michael Rockefeller. Uh, he's also currently writing a novel. It may be out at some point in the future. And he also wrote another book called Last Wild Men in Borneo, which is definitely worth uh, checking out if you're interested in the, the topic more broadly. Uh, Hugo, what did you think of that? Yeah, it was a, a really interesting uh, hour-long chat. Uh, we really sort of dived into the mystery of Michael's final moments, which is sort of contested um, in a number of ways. Uh, and Carl sort of sets out very clearly his interpretation of the situation. Uh, and he, you know, we, he, we went through his experiences with uh, the Azmat people to sort of piece together the, his story, which is, uh, yeah, a really fascinating one and uh, yeah, left us uh, really thinking about the story. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll leave you in the warm embrace of Carl. Hi, Carl. Thank you very much for joining us all the way from America. I'm going to go straight into it. And uh, could you just explain to our listeners a little bit about uh, Michael Rockefeller and sort of what was his influence um, in you know, his family's influence in America? Well, the story takes place uh, between mostly between 1957 and 1961. He banished in 1961. And in that year, he graduated from Harvard. He was just 23 years old. And he was the son of Nelson Rockefeller, who at the time of his disappearance was the governor of New York um, State, uh, later became vice president under Gerald Ford. And, you know, perhaps more, even more important than that, you know, he was the Nelson was the grandson of John D. Rockefeller and which meant Michael was the great grandson of John D. And he was the founder of Standard Oil and the Rockefeller fortune. And, you know, at the time, uh, John D. Rockefeller was the richest man on earth. So that gives you some perspective. And the Rockefeller family are, you know, enormous, have long been enormous supporters of the arts and art collectors and um, Michael's, uh, uh, you know, the family started the Muse the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Perhaps most re relevant for this story, in nineteen in the late 1950s, uh, uh, Nelson began setting his own course as a collector, and in particular becoming fascinated with what we now call tribal art, but in those days was known as primitive art. And he created the first uh, museum in America, dedicated solely to primitive art and that was uh he opened the museum of primitive art in new york in uh 1957 and uh michael who was only 19 at the time was uh a member of the board and could you just sketch out a little bit about his uh his his life and what got him interested i mean you touched upon it there in in his family's background but could you could you explain how he got specifically interested in the Azmat tribe you know his his involvement in the world and of art and his upbringing in that world was uh you know hugely powerful and important 
And as he was graduating from college, I think the standard idea, or I should say the ideal uh, from his parents' point of view, would have been to go work in business and work in the family. Uh, and Michael was uninterested in doing that. And he kind of hooked up with a guy named Robert Gardner, who was the head of uh, um, the uh the, the film study center at Harvard and he had was a kind of a groundbreaking uh, filmmaker and he was uh, setting out to make a film about the Donny who uh, tribe who lived in the Balian Valley in the highlands of what was then Netherlands New Guinea is now part of Indonesia West Papua and the Donny uh, you know it, it, to get a sense of the whole thing in for as 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 wild and as remote as the island of New Guinea uh, is today, or seems to us to be today, it wasn't until nineteen the late nineteen thirties that an expedition uh, from the Natural Museum uh, History Natural History Museum of New York um, by accident discovered. Uh, just by flying over it, that in the highlands of New Guinea, up in the, these mountains, uh, huge mountains that reach up to 16,000 feet, you know, instead of there just being mountain peaks that were uninhabited, they discovered this sort of hidden valley, a Shangri-La almost, in which hundreds of thousands of people were living. And, you know, those people were completely uncontacted as late as the late 1930s. And so this is 1961, it's just 30 years later, and the Donnie were still living very traditional lives, no roads into, uh, the, into the Balian Valley, um, and they were still engaged in traditional uh, warfare in which they were constantly kind of battling their neighbors in these, uh, this shifting war. Uh, and Gardner decided he wanted to go uh, plant himself in the Balling Valley and film the Donny. And he, Michael, signed on as a uh, as the sound guy. <laughs> Incredible! Yeah, you can see the you can see the sort of draw for a young Rockefeller. And but... I'm, I think it's important to say that Michael, you know, it's easy to sort of make fun of him a little bit, but from all accounts, he was a really, you know, a nice and an earnest guy who was tremendously interested in, uh, in the world and in seeing more of the world and in exploring and in doing something that mattered and that wasn't just, mm. you know, opening a new bank or something. Yeah. So he signed on to it, onto this expedition, but he also heard about this tribe that lived along the coast. Um, New Guinea is, uh, I mean, I mentioned it sort of briefly, but it's this fantastic place, you know, with uh, 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 in, in which, you know, it goes from the, a coast, uh, a sea level coast into uh, very high mountain peaks in a very short distance, incredibly rugged. And he heard about these people who were living along the coast in a swampland of southwestern uh, West Papua, then Netherlands, New Guinea, called the Azmat. And while the Dani were this very, in those days, you know, people talked about them being living in the Stone Age still. Uh, they were sedentary farmers uh, and they fought their neighbors, but they lived very, very simple lives. And the Azmat on the coast, on the other hand, 
were these fantastic warrior people who also were constantly fighting their neighbors, each other, but were headhunters, and uh, it was reported cannibals as well. And in unlike the Dani, who made nothing but their their digging sticks and their houses and their uh, axes out of stones, the Asmat were these fantastic artists and carving everything they touched. They made beautiful paddles, drums, headrests, spears, shields, and most of all, most spectacular of all, these um, sort of giant 20, 25-foot-high uh, kind of totem poles, uh, ancestor poles known, known as beach poles, B-I-S-J. And we can get into their significance. But he heard about the Asmat and... You know, you can sort of put all the pieces together easily. He was the, a board member of the Museum of Primitive Art. He was, uh, uh, you know, his father's son. He, nobody had really done much collecting from the ASMAT, and he hatched this plan that he wanted to break away from the film at a certain point and, and check out the ASMAT. Interesting stuff. Thank you. And. Yeah, you mentioned it slightly earlier. The, the islands were part of the Dutch East Indies. In, in terms of the relationship with the Dutch um, and the Asmats, what what was that like, and did it did it play a role in the story that played out in the end? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy the whole the whole story. I mean, you know, Indonesia, the Indonesian archipelago, had been uh, a Dutch colony for three hundred years, and you know, from east to west, this giant uh, chain of islands. Um, and in after World War II, uh, all of that, the you know, Indonesians rose and, and fought a war and uh, Sukarno uh, and, and became an independent nation. And uh, the, the charismatic leader, Sukarno, uh, was president. And uh, all of the former Dutch East Indies became independent with the exception of the western half of the island of New Guinea. The eastern half had been uh, British and Australian and uh, the western half had been Dutch. And Sukarno wanted uh, wanted everything as he as as is reasonable. He didn't want and the Dutch had this kind of uh, uh, an attachment uh, uh, to maintaining their last, this last foothold in the East and this last colony. And uh, all of those uh, arguments were going on at the time of uh, Michael's disappearance. And to add complexity to it, you know, for a long time, United States policy had been to support the Australians and the British and uh, and the Dutch and, and, and uh, you know, support the, uh, the uh, Dutch uh, uh, aim to retain uh, its colony and uh, Netherlands, uh, New Guinea. But uh, when Kennedy came in, um, you know, Sukarno was playing with this master uh, uh, puppeteer, if you will, and he was playing the, uh, the, 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 the West off against the, Eastern Bloc, and he was taking money from and weapons from the Soviet Union, and as well as the United States, and some from China. And this is the era of dominoes and 
you know, the Indochina War and fears of communism and Kennedy said, uh, changed American policy and said, let's uh, give, let's support Sukarno's bid to get the Netherlands, uh, New Guinea back to in back as part of Indonesia. And by doing so, that will, you know, help him keep away from the evil communists and uh, that was uh, the the very week that Michael disappeared. The Dutch were making their play in the United Nations to create a so-called protectorate that would, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it would just keep West Papua as a Dutch colony. Uh, thank you for that uh, context, Carl. Uh, just to bring it back to your book, to bring it back to your book, Savage Harvest, could you give us uh, a little bit of an insight into what, Michael's motivations were, and also how the expedition started to unfold. Well, I think Michael's motivations were, uh, you know, that he wanted to, uh, he was genuinely interested in the art. I think he wanted to make a name for himself in collecting. I think he was fascinated by that asthmat, by the idea of this very uh, seldom contacted tribe living in a remote place. And, you know, I think he was also uh, somebody who probably wanted to, you can imagine Nelson, Governor Rockefeller was, a, uh, you know, somebody that he wanted to impress. So while he was in the Bowling Valley on the, on the Gardner film expedition, he, uh, during a break in the filming, he uh, went down, made his way down to Asmat, which is a 10,000 square foot, uh, square mile swamp. Um, and it's a, uh, uh, it's just, it's completely level. It, there are no rocks, no boulders, no mountains, no hills. It's uh, just a land of mud and river and sago trees and these uh, huge, um, tides that, uh, you know, inundate the land for miles and most villages are built on, um, you know, above the ground on stilts and there was no farming because it was such a swamp. And so the Asmat were these pure hunter gathering warriors and he made it to Asmat and he spent uh, a couple weeks. He just linked up with a, uh, Dutch uh, anthropologist named Adrian Gerbrands and uh, who had been living in a village for a couple years and he made his way collected a few things but not that much uh, it, bottom line it was a reconnaissance journey and it all seemed doable and he decided then he flew back into the uh, Balian Valley to finish the film and decided that when the film was done he would make a major collecting expedition in Asmat. It ended up unfolding tragically in the end do you want to sort of sum up what um your book uh, tells us about those sort of final moments <laughs> well i mean that's the heart of the story in a way and it's and it's long and it's complicated but you know michael uh arrived in asmat he was given a 34 year old uh anthropologist named renee wassing who was in uh in uh in Dutch New Guinea at the time uh, as sort of an, F, an official escort. And when he was in the um, kind of main, the government center of Asmat, a place called Agats, 
which is extremely uh, undeveloped at the time. You know, the very first real contacts with asthma had only happened in, in the very late 1950s. So this is 1961, November of 1961, October of 1961. And he stumbled across a uh, Dutch colonial patrol officer Name and he had a whose job it was to kind of patrol around the, his district, and he had cobbled together this kind of uh, a Huck Finn-like craft, two dugout canoes uh, connected by a uh, kind of a hut on top, and with a couple of outboards or an outboard on the on the stern, and he convinced uh, Rene uh, connect. Uh, Vin, Vin, a man named Vin Vandeval to sell him his boat and he and uh, Rene Wassing and two local teenage uh, boy, Asmat boys uh, set off on the rivers and of Asmat and they wandered about a month, six weeks and um, they were crossing uh, from one river, the mouth of one river to another. They were uh, in the Arafura Sea, in the ocean, in a place of enormous tides and then these rivers uh they were crossing the mouth of a of a, a river and that mouth is you know several miles wide i mean that's the that's the fall and this huge volume of water was pouring out all the time but then when high tide would come in you'd have this tide this great force of water coming from the ocean up river smashing into the outflowing river and creating these standing these turbulent area of turbulence standing waves and they were crossing it and you know they sort of the boat bottomed out at the, in the trough of a wave and the engine was swamped and they couldn't get it started and they drifted and the two boat boys jumped in the way you know, they could see that they were very close to land and the two uh, local boys jumped in the water and swam off to shore to get help and uh, you know, then the uh, a wave hit the boat and it was flipped over and Wassing and Michael climbed on top of the boat and floated for uh, you know overnight and in the morning they were getting they were they were drifting further out to sea and uh, no help had come and. Uh, they thought maybe the boys had drowned or met some terrible end. And Michael uh, said, I think I can make it. I'm going to swim to shore. And Renee, the the wise, older, wiser guy, you know, said, no, I'm not going to go. And I don't think I can make it. And Michael uh, stripped down and strapped two empty uh, gasoline tanks to his waist by a rope and jumped in and said, I think I can make it. And uh, Renee Wassing uh, watched him swim off and Michael was never seen again. And um, so, and I, yeah, go on, go on, sorry, Carl. Yeah, I mean, I, and, you know, as it happened, of course, I mean, you know, Michael violated what, the first law of yachting, which is never to leave the boat. Mm. And, it, uh, you know, as it mm. turned out, of course, the local boys had made it to shore and, uh, you know, they'd had to trek through mud and the jungle and they'd reached Argots and they'd raised the alarm. And the Dutch were, uh, you know, had all these uh, sophisticated maritime patrol planes in the in uh, in uh, uh, Dutch New Guinea at the time. And they scrambled those and 
you know, within a few hours, they found the boat and they found Renee Wassing and they dropped, it was late in the day and they dropped the raft to him and Renee clambered into the raft. And the next day they uh, rescued him. They sent a boat out and they rescued him. And um, then, but there was no sign of Michael and they launched this enormous uh, search and rescue effort. Uh, Nelson was uh, alerted to Michael's disappearance in New York and he and Michael's twin sister, Mary, you know, jumped on airplanes and immediately flew to New Guinea and the Australians sent over helicopters and local people and uh, 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 colonial officials and um you know, various missionaries all went searching for Michael and nothing was ever found. And so, and so after about two weeks, you know, the searchers on Michael was declared lost at sea and um, uh, the searchers all went home. Nelson and Mary went home and, uh, and, and that was it. Uh, as far as the world con- was concerned, uh, Michael was gone. But as it happened, these, there were two priests, two Dutch priests, um, uh, Cornelius Van Kessel and uh, uh, Father Van Pye, and both had been living in the region for several years, and both spoke asmat, and they were in slight, two slightly different parishes, if you will, but close to the area where Michael had vanished, and they were, you know, after all the search and rescue people went home, they resumed their perambulations through their district, and immediately they were confronted with these stories that Michael, that the men from one particular village, the village of Ochnep, had in fact encountered Michael and that uh, they had killed him and and consumed him. There's a number of theories, aren't there? And and obviously your book uh, sort of uh, explores uh, or expands on Michael's last moments. I was just wondering if you could explain to our listeners what the... Well, firstly, what you think happened and and what the other theories are. Well, you know, Michael disappeared and, and, you know, after the search and rescue people went home, um, uh, as far as the world was concerned, there was no further sign of Michael. And over the years, he was officially declared uh, dead in 1964. And of course, like Elvis and Amelia Earhart and, you know, anyone who is famous and vanishes, there were all kinds of theories, you know, that he was alive and well, and you know, hiding out with the asthmat, having renounced all uh, worldly goods and connection to his family or that he was um you know on the trobriand islands a thousand miles away or that he had been you know eaten by crocodiles or that he had been killed by uh by the asthmat and consumed but there was no uh you know i suppose you can say that any of those theories were they were all equal um, you know, the the official theory was that he had been either drowned or been eaten by a crocodile. Drowned was the way the family liked to look at it. And, um, you know, that's how things stood when I began looking into the story in 2012 is when I originally started. And, uh, you know, my idea was that, <clears throat> you know, it's funny. I, I told my publisher that as I was pitching my book, I said, if you want, if, if you if the only way you'll buy this book is if I can assure you that I will can find out once and for all what happened to Michael, then 
you shouldn't buy this book because I don't know that I can do that. But I said, it'll be an interesting story nonetheless. And they were like, fine, fine, fine. So I got a contract. But the first thing I did was hire a researcher in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam. And uh, he began going into the archives, both of the Dutch colonial government and the uh, Catholic Church. And uh, he started finding stuff. You know, the first things he found were just all the the logs of the search, but you know, that in, in and of itself was fascinating. Mm. And then he began finding, uh, he found reports from Van Kessel and from uh, Von Pye. And these were lengthy, detailed reports that no one had ever seen before that had mm. been written and that, that said, uh, you know, uh, not only that Michael had been killed and, and eaten by the men from Ochenep, but that uh, who had killed him, who had driven the spear into him, who had, uh, and then who had actual names of people who had various body parts, his tibia, his, uh, you know, his various ribs, who had his head, um, you know, and they were they were too detailed to ignore. And then, you know, started finding all of these documents, other documents, and, and and that led to a very clear story that in 1957 there had been there were these two villages, Ochenep and Omadasep, who, uh, which uh, as the crow flies are, you know, a couple miles from each other, uh, but because you have to go because there are no roads even today, you have to go on on boats they're several hours from each other and those two villages were kind of like um you know new york and washington dc i mean two big important cities two important big important villages that were deeply traditional and that had been uh vying for power and fighting each other for um you know as long as anyone could remember and those in 1957 the men from Omadasep had conceived this plan to, and they had uh, gone to the village of Ochnep. And even though these villages were uh, at war with each other, the, all these places are interconnected as well by marriage and warfare and the, the, the complex nature of Asmat culture. And they had convinced the men from Ochnep to go on a journey with them down the down the coast to a place <laughs> up a river that had a magic pool. And that magic pool, if you threw heads into that pool, uh, you would get, uh, the pool would produce uh, dog's tooth necklaces, these uh, beautiful um, uh, intricate necklaces made out of dog's teeth. And those were important in status and in particular in acquiring a bride. And, you know, it's hard to, to imagine how all this transpired, but you know, a hundred, they convinced a bunch of men from uh, the the men from Omadasep convinced these guys from Ochenep to go with them. About 120 men set off, and um, you know, it was all a ruse. The men from Omadasep were going to uh, 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 ambush the men from Ochenep and kill them and use their skulls. But as it happened, you know, they get there. A storm came and they were attacked by they had to had to go to shore and they were attacked by various people all along the way and mayhem ensued and everybody killed everybody else and in the end out of the 120 men who set out only about 10 made it home and 
the Dutch heard of the Dutch government, which was trying to pacify the Asmat at the time, heard about this uh, great battle. And uh, there was one colonial patrol officer named Max Lepre, and he had been, his family had been, uh, you know, Dutchmen living in their col in the col Dutch colony for, for several generations. And Max Lepre's father had been uh, uh, tortured by the Japanese during World War II. And Max was kind of this, uh, your post poster diehard colonial. And he uh, set off with a last, with a, with a boatload of armed policemen to teach the Asmat a lesson, to show them, and I'm quoting pretty closely, to show them the power of the Dutch government. And he uh, arrived in the village of Omadasep and he burnt a bunch of uh, men's houses, long houses, the most sacred uh, structures in the village. And then uh, went on to uh, to Ochinep and he arrived in uh, the river the 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 river up into Ochinep is a very narrow and things hanging over it and it's hot and it feels claustrophobic and it started raining and you know, Lepre was scared and uncomfortable among the Asmat indigenous people and he arrived uh, uh, at twilight and again mayhem ensued and his men opened fire and they killed five men. And uh, we found his report and detailing all of this and the reports of, uh, of, uh, of the two missionaries that pointed to the killing of Michael as a reciprocation, revenge is a word we might use, but it's overly simplistic, that they had killed Michael in reciprocation for uh, the killing, uh, you know, just three and a half years earlier of these men in the village of Ochinep. And, you know, I found all of those documents. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I'm, and, and the Catholic Church had said, I found the document from the apostolic vicar who was the most important uh, Catholic official in Dutch New Guinea at the time to uh, Van Kessel saying, this is a cabinet of glass. Do not wow. touch it. Wow. And they kept it all secret. Wow. But in fact, the Dutch um, government had set, had taken their uh, report seriously, and it actually sent uh, Wim van Benders, the very man who had sold the, the, the vessel to Michael Rockefeller, into the village of Oceanet to investigate. And he spent three months in the village, and he came away, uh, uh, you know, writing a report saying that Michael Rockefeller had been killed by the men of Ochinep. Mm. And that report, all of that was suppressed. And as it happened, the Dutch effort to retain uh, Dutch New Guinea failed in the United Nations. And, um, you know, Midway through the year, uh, the the Dutch uh, vacated and the Indonesia took over, and the whole thing just no longer had any resonance anymore. So all of those things, you know, I have this amazing uh, table from Joseph Lunds, who is the Dutch Minister of Foreign Affairs. You know, not some underling, and it's to the um, Dutch ambassador to the United States. 
and it's uh, it's responding to to queries from Nelson Rockefeller, who had heard a rumor that Michael had been had made it to shore and been been killed. And 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 Lund says in this cable, we have investigated fully, and these rumors are untrue. So they lied, and the whole the whole thing it was uh, silent for all those years. So when I found all these documents, that was kind of the beginning of making it seem real to me. But that was only a piece of it. You know, these are white colonials interpretation of events. Did this really happen? Because yeah. um, you know, what, what to step in there, the interpretation of your story is uh, disputed, particularly by um, the people of Ochimat, who to this day deny that side of the story. Could you maybe sort of elaborate on that quickly? Well, they don't really dispute it necessarily. I think that's a gross oversimplification. But in the end, I went to, uh, I made two trips to the village of Ochnep. I spent uh, two months uh, the first time going in and out, made several trips. I got nowhere. I had a big retinue of people, boat and boat captain and the, his assistant and the and all these other cook and the interpreter and uh, I got nowhere. You know, the the people in Ochnep were very reticent to talk and went silent and eventually just wouldn't even talk to me at all. And I left uh, after two months of prying. I I left and went home and I thought I had enough maybe for a story. You know, the people in Omadasep and Ochnep itself were very frank and remembered, for instance, the uh, the, the battle between Omadasep and Ochnep, and they recounted the, the story of Lepre coming in and the, and the death of five villagers. But of Michael, they would say basically nothing. And so what I did, I finally decided that I needed to go back into the village and I needed to go alone without any uh, uh, any people getting in between me and I needed to speak Indonesian so I could speak directly and that's what I did. I learned sort of a crash course of Indonesian and uh, eight months after I left, I went I went back and I ended up living uh, with a, an elder named Kokai in his house with about 20 other people and instead of asking about Michael Rockefeller, I didn't really ask anything. I just lived with them. I and uh, you know, sat with them and drink drank coffee and smoked cigarettes and observed life and uh, got to know them. And you know, slowly over the months that I was there, uh, the story unfolded in a very very different way. And the questions that I asked them were. Um, you know, they weren't about Michael per se. They were asking, I asked, you know, who were the men killed by Max LaPrey? And it turns out they were the the heads of the four out of the five of the people killed were the heads of four of the Jews, the men's houses, the kind of clans, the most important, the Kapala Parangs, uh, the most important people in the village, both politically and uh, uh, spiritually. And then I asked, for instance, who the uh, the people who were said in the reports to have 
participated in the killing of Michael and who had pieces of him, who they were and what their relationship to the men who had been killed by LaPrey was. And of course, they were all blood relatives and they were the men who had taken their place as the leaders of the men's houses. So that and we haven't talked at all about Asmat culture and the and the the you know, the cosmology of headhunting and reciprocation and of balancing the world, but those are all important things and those led to the um you know, the obvious conclusion that Michael had been that, that affirmed that Michael had been killed okay, fast. by the men from Ochenep. Fascinating, and we'll probably touch on that in a sec. But I just wanted to to ask you something uh, uh, because I think in an interview you said that your goal in writing Savage Harvest was not to solve the mystery of Rockefeller, but that you hungered to see quotes, hungered to see a humanity before the Bible, before the Quran, before Christian guilt and shame, before clothes and knives and forks. Uh, end quote. Could you explain what you meant by this to our listeners, Carl? Yeah, that's a kind of a. Uh, uh, uh... Um, an innocent, or another way to put it, an ignorant uh, way of expressing it. The book itself kind of um, purposefully goes from this idea of, um, you know, Stone Age people uh, to a much, much deeper understanding of them. And that's really what came through my ultimately with my living uh, with them and that, um, you know, there was nothing primitive about them at all. They were incredibly sophisticated and incredibly complex. And, uh, you know, I wanted to understand that. I mean, there's, uh, uh, I wanted to understand who these people were and understanding. And it was ultimately through, you know, the book is about Michael's death, but really Michael throughout the whole story because he's young 23 years old because he hadn't done much um, because there's not a lot of written from him for those very reasons he's a bit of a two-dimensional figure sort of a cipher in a, a little bit but the ultimately the story and what makes it a, such an interesting story is the deep dive into asmat and under it was the the way to unravel um the what happened to to Michael was to unravel and understand Asmat culture. So really what that's what that quote is all about. And it's sort of laying the foundation in a literary sense for a, an awakening that I uh, was hoping to, that I was pursuing. And then I felt like I got. Brilliant. That's really interesting stuff. Thank you. And I guess you've touched on it slightly there, and I'm sure your motivation has changed as you were writing the book, but what was the sort of primary motivation at the beginning to uh, look into this really fascinating story? Well, it was one of those things that just touched everything, really. I mean, I had heard, I actually went to Indonesia in 1987 for the first time, and uh, my dad was living there working uh, in Jakarta for a few years. And, you know, my girlfriend and I went over and visited him and he had, uh, was a voracious reader and had, you know, been reading always. He read everything he could find on, um, you know, anywhere he was. And he had found this book called Where the Spirits Dwell by Tobias Schneebaum, an American artist who is a fantastic uh, character. And he had gone into asthma in 1975 
and lived for five years and he was uh, uh, he was gay and he was kind of the first person because all of the early ethnological work on Asmat had been done by Catholic priests. You can imagine their their biases. Um, and uh, Schneebaum was this flamboyant character and he immediately, I guess he'd even heard rumors that the Asmat, uh, the men in certain places uh, would take male bondmates. There's a lot of really crazy, uh, complex cultural stuff going on, but, you know, in essence, it's kind of asthmat men kind of uh, appropriated female um, uh, 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 birth and uh, kind of fecundity uh, ideas. And um, men, you know, there was all this semen exchange and men, uh, you know, the, the very essence of a, of a, I mean, a tree had a tree, a man is a tree, a tree is a man, both have legs and arms and a head, the fruit of a, a tree comes from the fruit of a tree, men come from the fruit of men, which is their head and adolescents would, you know, would, would uh, men who are becoming men would sit for three days with a, the head of a, of a, you know, someone who had been murdered and, and his head removed between their legs, literally touching their groin, soaking up, you know, the, 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 the seeds of men. And so part of that was male bondmates and men, you know, having sex with other men. So for Schneebaum in the early 1970s, this was this paradise. And so he had written this fantastic book about um, asthmat and asthmat culture and his, you know, long love affair with an asthmat man. So I read that book and been fascinated by it. And then I heard about, you know, Michael, the disappearance of Michael is one of those things every traveler hears about. You know, was he eaten? What happened to him? And, um, you know, that always stuck with me. And then after, you know, reading Schneebaum's book, then I heard about the movie that Michael had, had worked on, um, which I saw and which is a, you know, called Dead Birds, the Robert Gardner's movie. And that's a crazy, fantastic, weird movie. And so I'd seen all those things and, and I was aware of all those things. And, uh, you know, over time it, it just grew with me. And then I was looking for a book and I project and it occurred to me that enough time, you know, I was a reporter and I, was good at, I think, you know, my specialty really was going into places that were remote and hard to get to and, you know, doing substantive reporting. And, and um, you know, I felt like the enough time had passed where, you know, 50 years had gone by and people's reluctance, perhaps, to talk about some of these things had fallen away, that there was enough distance and yet not too much distance that it was a dim memory. And so all of those things kind of came together um, and and made me want to want to check it out. I mean, one thing that I want to say, which is to me, which is really interesting. I mean, ultimately, this is a story about power. And, and you know, the, the Rockefellers were among the most powerful families uh, in, you know, on Earth, probably, certainly in America. And when Michael vanished, it was just you know, Nelson and his, and Michael's sister flew there, all this search and rescue, and they were absolutely powerless in this place. And, you know, the, a, a guy who was a friend, a, a, an American photographer who worked for Life magazine, was a friend of the, uh, of the Rockefellers. Uh, he went and he was flying over uh, 
over Asnat looking for Michael as part of the search in, in, a, in a PBY Catalina as part of the search for Michael, and he was sitting in his typewriter uh, in the plane, and he wrote, uh, uh, and he said, you know, flying over this endless expanse of mud where it said a man can fall into that mud and be stuck forever and never get up. And that was total BS. That was a that was a white fantasy from written from an airplane. Asnat had been living in that mud and rolling in it and having sex in it and making art with it, you know, for thousands of years. But that was the kind of attitude. You know, Michael vanished and every nobody for years and years and years People made little efforts to uncover Michael, but nobody really, you know, in the end, the key to it was going and living with the asthma. Mm. And, and, you know, uh, at the moment of Michael's death, I just want to say this because this is really important. The moment of Michael's death, the asthma were being forcibly and violently pacified by the Dutch. Mm. Uh, you know, the asthma were, had nothing but, but, but spears and bows and arrows and you know as you can see from la Pre, you know the dutch had weapons and airplanes and steel boats and you can only begin to you know conceive of the power differential and and they they're all of their most sacred um religious rites the things that made them whole headhunting and cannibalism were being stamped forcibly stamped out by the dutch and the moment of michael's encounter with the men from ochnep at the shoreline on november 21st 1961 you know michael rockefeller had lost all of his power he was exhausted he mm. was alone you know it was the first encounter with the asthmat in which he was alone in which he wasn't with other whites other westerners um, and he was uh, vulnerable. And at that moment, you know, actually an argument ensued among the asthmat there between different men's houses. And, uh, you know, they, uh, the, 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 the asthmat killed Michael and took in an effort to take their power back. Mm, really fascinating stuff. Thank you, Carl, for sharing that. And uh, sort of building on what you've what you've just said there, um, reportedly the Asmat people were still practicing ritual headhunting and cannibalism until as late as the fifties. And and your book contains some wonderfully evocative descriptions as, of Asmat life, just as you've you've explained uh, briefly there. Um, do your do your did your experience traveling in that region help you understand the fascination that Rockefeller and, and other Westerners have and had with the region, uh, West Papua? Yeah, of course, I mean, you know, the asthma were uh, were this fantastically are still this fantastically complicated culture, and if you go into uh, a museum, you know, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York has the Michael. Rockefeller room which is the name you know it's whole uh, uh, gallery of, uh, of, of tribal of indigenous art is named after Michael now and um, you know you can see he collected about 500 objects before he, he was killed and you know all you have to do is look at the canoes these long canoes with stripes of ochre and chalk and incredibly beautiful carvings of men and alligators and the beach poles you know these 25 foot high 
uh, dynamically carved, uh, incredible works of art. And these were people who were living in complete isolation from the West, from contact with anyone else. And yet they were, and they had no, you know, originally those, all of those things were carved with shell. Wow. They didn't even have rock. Um, and, and, you know, the fascination and, and, and that art was, was, was inextricably woven with the culture as a whole. You know, the art, I mean, all tribal art is sacred art. Mm. And it was all part of these really complex uh, religious functions. I mean, full body masks and, you know, this constant deep ritual life um, expressed through art and master craftsmen, you know, who wouldn't be fascinated living in this world of, in this swamp. Yeah. Interesting. And is, has that culture Go changed? there now. Uh, well, you know, it's fascinating because when I first went there, uh, the first Catholic missionaries went in the late 1950s and, um, you know, today, um, Asmat is Catholic and, you know, in every village, the Asmat will tell you that they're Catholics and, you know, there are, uh, uh, the, the, the bishop, there was a bishop, um, in Agat for many years, an American who was an American and, you know, cause after the Dutch uh, left, uh, the Americans rolled in and, uh, American Crozier bishops, I mean, bishops, um, priests. And, um, you know, for every village either had a, had, you know, priests going through it, they had a catechist. So it, it, today, when you go into the villages, you know, your first thought, my first thought is one of great degradation. And, you know, these people in, in uh, you know, who, who in Michael's time were, you know, completely naked, um, now, you know, in, in tattered gym shorts and T-shirts mm -hmm. for the cast-off clothes of the Western world. And, you know, they sit around smoking and and um, sort of staring into space, talking. It all seems very listless. Um, you know, and there's carving that goes on, but the, but the, the Dutch um, and the, the American priests actually, when the Indonesians came in, they outlawed all sacred and all ceremonial stuff and burned all the Jew, the, the, the men's houses. And uh, the Americans actually slowly revived the art of carving, but in a much more, you know, absent all the great headhunting uh, motifs, you know, no more um, uh, crocodiles, no more, um, you know, certain birds that they, no more praying mantises. The praying mantis was a powerful headhunting symbol. No, no, and so art became much more generic and offered up for the tourist market. I mean, it's still kind of cool, but it, it lacks the power. But all that said, you know, and when you sit down with the asthmat, you know, they cross, they make the sign of the cross or they'll say a prayer before they eat. And, but, you know, all that said, when I, the longer I stayed there and when I was living there, I found this whole other uh, world, this whole other side and like a lot of people, you know, the Mayans in Guatemala, I mean, there's this, you know, wild molding of uh, old and new ways. And, you know, the, the, the asthma today are Catholics with, uh, 
you know, we're in contact with the spirits and the spirits are everywhere and they're not Catholic spirits and they're the Sago spirits and there's all this fantastic stuff going on. You know, they start drumming and they, one day when I was there, they drummed, they drummed and sang for 24 hours straight. And, you know, all this fantastic stuff. So in the end, like a lot of people, what you see sort of as a tourist or just dropping in, parachuting in someplace is uh, only the, the the thinnest veneer and that beneath the surface is this great um, uh, other sacred world going on. And that's still, it's still largely intact. I mean, there's no headhunting anymore. There was, there were reports of heading on the, in, in very remote places into the sixties, but that's all gone. Thanks, Carl. And just moving on slightly, uh, what do you think the most valuable lesson Rockefeller's sort of life teaches us? <laughs> well, it's a good question. <laughs> I don't know about what his life teaches us. I mean, I think it's like, you know, I think the, the story of his life is one of hubris. You know, I think that he was well-intentioned. Um and 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 but I think you know had he not been a Rockefeller he wouldn't have been doing what he did in quite the way he was doing it and he wouldn't have ended up in the situation in which he found himself you know I think um, somebody else wouldn't have just been ranging far and wide with um, uh, uh, by himself and and essentially, and, and buying, um, uh, uh, you know, large quantities of sacred art that he didn't really understand. He understood it a little bit, but not completely. Um, and he, um, you know, for pennies, I mean, for fish hook and fish hooks and tobacco and monofilament fishing line. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that uh he had this a certain privilege and and uh he got himself into a place and among a people that he didn't really understand and that led to his demise so you know there's probably a lesson there for me personally you know i think it opened up i was a raised an atheist and you know i still in a way call myself an atheist but it was among the intense spiritual and sacred worlds of the Asmat, which I saw something that was obviously, you know, connected to the great, um, you know, highly structured uh, and problematic monotheistic religions and in which we all, in which so many people, you know, want to turn away from for all, for all kinds of reasons, like, you know, abuse from priests and all those things. And I saw these people who had this, you know, I saw the, the, and the motifs and the archetypes and I, and, and I understood, I think in, in, in deep inside me, the human need for uh, stories and myths and making things sacred in a way that I had never understood. And that has really stayed with me in a powerful way. And thank you, Carl, for that sort of personal insight there. And just to, to wrap things up, if you had the chance to go for a pint or a beer with Rockefeller today, what would be the one question that you would ask him? <laughs> That's such a good question. It's hard to say. I mean, I think, 
you know, there are all kinds of things, but I, I just want to ask him about his swim. You know, the, the, uh, the first two chapters of my book are somewhat, you know, there's some liberties taken in nonfiction writing and I, they're based on very, very detailed reporting. You know, I knew about what time he left. I knew where the men from Ocean Up were um, when he was, would have arrived. I knew what the tides were. I knew what the water temperature was. I knew, you know, where the water became deep. I knew all, I knew what the weather was. I knew all of those things, but of course I still don't know um, the actual, you know, details of what he was thinking um, and of, and especially what he was thinking at his moment of encounter with uh, Finn and Pep and Ajum, the spiritual and war leaders of Ochnep who he swam up to and who killed him. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Carl. I think that is a wrap. We're just about to get to an hour. So um, yeah, thank you for sort of telling this captivating story and yeah, really bringing You're it welcome. to life with uh, yeah, your yeah. book. So thank, thank you. I feel like the, the, there's another episode in there just on the, the anthropology sort of side of things. That, uh, but yeah, it's really fascinating. Yeah, story. it's really, uh, it's deep. It's fascinating. The yeah. matter are quite a people. And amazing that you got to spend so much time with them. Really envious. <laughs>